0: for those of you guys who like snow. Typical Pittsburgh snow, right? Snows an inch, melts the next day, which is also okay. Uh, So if this is your first time here, we're glad you're here. Those of you online, welcome. Those in person, welcome. Um, If this is your first time, please hang out after the service. We'd like to get to know you and have you get to know us a bit. Uh, If you're here and you're not a Christian um, and you do not know Jesus Christ, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would also encourage you to continue to come back Um, The Lord has you here. You may not know that. Um, It's no accident that you're here tonight, and we'd like to see you at future services. Maybe you'll get to hear our stories, and we'll get to know your stories. So we're glad you're here. Uh, Before we get started tonight, I'm just going to go through the space a bit. Um, Over to the left here is the women's room up the steps. The men's room is up the steps to the right of me. Um, In front, there's some drinks. In the back, there's some drinks, coffee, tea, Um, The bookstore, which is always a good resource for you. Um, There's a ton of good books back there. We'll be open after the service. Please take a look. Uh, They're priced extremely well. They're not overpriced. They're just probably where they should be. So please stop and take a look. Uh, If you have prayer concerns or an offering, you can put it in the black box up front. And one additional thing tonight, um, these GCC guides, they've been handed out. I think they're maybe on chairs or they've been given to you. They're good sermon notes for Pete's sermon tonight. Um, They're also extremely helpful to use if you're in a GCC um, during the week. Um, So lastly for me, uh, here at Eternal City Church, we are here to multiply passionate love for Jesus Christ and those made in his image. We do this by making disciple, making disciples, unifying all people, training and challenging men to lead sacrificially, equipping women for ministry and Planting church, planting churches. So I think uh, I'm going to Jerome and Debbie.
1: All right. You're going to probably be tired of hearing of us talk about the marriage course that's coming up starting on the 27th, every other Saturday for seven sessions. Uh, And this is for uh, married couples. If you're having problems, not having problems, if you have a great and you think you want to have a better marriage, uh, it's not geared towards any particular problem or issue, just geared towards making your marriage better. So Debbie and I will be leading this, but it's mostly videos. And the other part that's uh, pretty important is this is not a sharing session. This is you as a couple sharing with each other, not sharing in a group. Uh, So it's the effort that you put in is the effort that comes out.
0: So it's um, every other Saturday from 6 to 8.30, you'll be provided dinner, and there will be childcare provided. Um, There's sign-up sheets in the back, both if you wanna sign up as a couple, as well as if you'd like to volunteer to help with either the food or the childcare or set up, tear down. And also, um, it'll be helpful for us to have numbers so we can start planning food as well as the childcare. So if you could sign up soon, if you think you're gonna do it, or at least let us know if you're thinking about it. Um, And it's pretty important to commit to all seven sessions. They kind of build on each other. Um, So, you know, try to to make sure that it's a workable thing with every other Saturday. Um, But talk to us if you have any questions, and we'd be happy to explain anything.
1: Yeah, these sheets will be in the back. Uh, So far, we have two official. I think we had two other couples talk to us. So, uh, So come plenty of room. So come find us if you have any questions about it, um, and just let us know. And hopefully, we'll all have better marriages after this. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Jerome and Debbie. Hey, everybody. Good to see all of you tonight. Uh, Just a few quick announcements. Um, So the the Grove is our, our women's ministry, and they are working on a new start date coming up. And so as soon as that is finalized and uh, booked as far as the rooms go. We'll let you know, but it is coming. However, February 2nd is the next Ladies' Night. This Ladies' Night is connected to the Grove, but it is uh, for anybody. It's for you to bring your friends and family to. It's a good way for you to introduce other lady friends to the church. And so what we're asking of you is, if you could provide your home as a space for this February 2nd meeting, that would be wonderful. Even if you have done it in the past, that would be fine. If you're uh, uh, new to this ministry, we're just looking for someone to open up their home and to provide a space to do this ladies' night. Um, If you could talk to either Elizabeth Rue or Jackie Features and let them know that uh, this is something you'd like to do, it'd be a great help to us. And uh, it is a good, it's not just a good, it's a great ministry, it's a great opportunity for you ladies to get to know each other and to build outside of a worship setting. Uh, where we are participating, but we're not necessarily having good conversation and deep conversation, unless you hang afterward for a bit, which many of you do, which I'm thankful for. Anyway, February 2nd, it's a Friday. Uh, if, if you would like to open up your home and host this event, please talk to Jackie, please talk to Elizabeth, and thank you. And then uh, we just got done with a prayer meeting upstairs. Uh, it was a wonderful time of prayer for 45 minutes, we prayed as um, as tim calls them big ticket items god's glory to be manifest in our church and in the surrounding communities marriages to be restored people to grow the lost to be found etc uh, and we're going to do this every sunday at 4 p.m. okay and so if even if you're not a prayer but you wanna come and pray with us, you can, you can be in the room and pray silently. My hope is that eventually, you would be comfortable enough to pray with us. Uh, but even if you wanna join in the prayer and, and pray along with us agreeing silently, that would be fine. Uh, and so every Sunday at 4 p.m. until 4.45, 15 minutes before worship starts, we're gonna pray together. And this will be upstairs right next to the nursery. Um, if you have any questions about that, you can come talk to me and uh, I'll fill you in on any details. Uh, we'll have a prayer guide for you there. And um, and, and it's, it's a great time to meet with God and to meet with each other. And so again, next week, prayer time, four o'clock to 4.45. At this time, We're gonna begin our worship gathering. And so if you could all stand, we're gonna read scripture together. Gina's gonna lead us in reading, and then we're gonna jump into the musical portion of the worship gathering tonight.
3: Hi, church. Let us read Psalm 73 together, various verses, but we can all read, so we're gonna read together. Truly God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet has almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Whom have I in heaven but you? and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.
4: What is going on, family? Happy New Year. If any of you are into Christian hip hop, there's a guy named Shad Lynn. I and mean, when they're reading that scripture, who have I in heaven but you? That song, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> So strong. This one. This is a familiar one.
5: Great is thy. And to God.
4: for the day. We pray that you're pleased with our worship, Lord. And let us continue to worship by listening to your word. Be with Pastor Pete as he delivers it for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
6: Good evening, everyone. It's good to see everyone here. I actually put this back over this way so I don't knock it off. trust everyone's had a good weekend, good start to their week. Um, If you have not, even if you have, if you have not, um, we are in a good place. We are in a place where We've come together, joined together as a community of believers to sing songs of praise to God, to hear from him, to be encouraged by one another. And so even if this weekend, if this week has not been one that has been a a good one for you, I trust that as we study God's word and as we interact together that you will be encouraged by God and what he's doing, not only in your life but in the lives of those who are in your church family. Before we jump into our study tonight, uh, I do wanna take some time to pray. We customarily pray for the kids, but I, I'd like us to, sp- to specifically as well take some time to pray for other churches in our area, for ourselves, for other churches in our network in Acts 29. Um, Chris and a few of the others in the church um, will be participating in an event over the next couple of days, um, a, a prayer and fasting retreat. There will be pastors from across northeast, the northeast parts of the state, the northeast network of Acts 29, who are coming into the Pittsburgh area and specifically praying for God to strengthen his church, for God to see new churches planted in western Pennsylvania. And so it will be an exciting time for those who are participating in that. And so I think it's fitting for us then as we consider the mission of God, not only in our church, but also in other churches around the Pittsburgh area and throughout the northeast of our country, that we ask God that he would strengthen us, that he would see new churches planted in in this place. And so let's take a, let's take some time, let's take a moment to pray together for that, as well as pray for the kids before they're dismissed. Heavenly Father, you invite us to talk with you. You invite us to pray to you. And as we consider the the landscape of our neighborhood, of our community here in Wilkinsburg, of the larger city of Pittsburgh, our region in western Pennsylvania, we recognize, Father, the need for the gospel is great. The gospel needs to be spoken, it needs to be lived, it needs to be heard, it needs to be believed. You gave us that mission when you spoke to your disciples to go make disciples who make disciples and to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we desire to have that be our mission. It's one of our core commitments, as Jeff spoke at the beginning of our worship time, to make disciples who make disciples. And we trust that there are many here in this city that you have called to be part of your kingdom, to be part of your family. But Father, if we're honest, there are times when this feels daunting. It almost feels impossible. There are times that we can grow discouraged in this mission. We, we sometimes reflect on our own lives and think we're just barely making it as it is. How can we give thought to mission to see disciples made in your name and for your glory? It just seems like too much there are times that we just feel like the devil's winning. And while those feelings may be genuine in our heart, God, we recognize that those feelings are just that. They're just feelings. They are not reality. They are not true. Because God, you have done and will continue to do the impossible. Our lives are a testimony to that. Our lives are a testimony to the impossible that's been done. You saved sinful people. You saved sinful enemies to be part of your people. That should be impossible, but you are a father who has lavished us with your grace. You've gifted us with Christ. So that while this mission can feel daunting, we rest in the truth and the reality of what your word says, that we are your church, and the gates of hell will not overwhelm your church. God, grant to us at Eternal City your strength to share the good news of the gospel. We ask for your spirit to awaken hearts in Wilkinsburg, in Penn Hills, in Homewood, in Point Breeze, in each of the neighborhoods that we live. We ask, Father, that at Eternal City we would be a light of the gospel in a dark world. We want to pray for other churches in our area, Father. Advanced Community Church, we, we pray for them as they seek to do your mission in, in Mars up north of the city. We ask for River City Church in Swissvale, not a part of our network, but one that we have like-mindedness and doctrine. We pray for them that they would be strengthened with the gospel and that they would go forth and reach the people of Swissvale with the gospel. For even covenant reform, those those who have allowed us to worship in their facility, God, we ask that you would embolden them and empower them with your spirit to see the gospel shared in Wilkinsburg. We pray that these churches and others in Pittsburgh that we would see more churches planted from that, that you would raise up leaders in these churches who would go and bring the gospel to neighborhoods that, ha- that do not have a gospel witness to parts of our community that have never heard. God, plant saturated, gospel-centered churches in these towns in these neighborhoods. Father, we pray as well for churches who are outside of our area as these pastors come to congregate in Pittsburgh for a couple of days and pray and fast. That, Father, you would bless that time, but you would bless those churches, you would bless those pastors. They're coming from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Philadelphia, all over the northeast part of our country, places that have are so resistant to the gospel. And we ask, Father, that through their leadership and through the church, that you would empower those places and see revival in those communities. We see revival in those cities. That we would hear reports from these pastors as they come and join with others in our church to pray that they would talk about how the gospel is impacting their lives and in the, in the communities that they live. Father, we think of even outside of the United States as our, we've partnered with University Community Church in Uganda and Pastor Jimmy. Father, we ask for strength for them, that you would gift them with your grace, that we would see them thrive in there in Uganda, and that the small part we play can be useful and beneficial for the gospel. That, Father, you would see more churches planted in Uganda through their efforts. Bless them with your spirit. And, Father, finally, we pray for the youngest among us. Those who you've placed in our community and our lives that need the gospel and need to be discipled. It is a blessing. It is a beautiful thing, the number of children we have. So we're thankful for that. And we would ask that as they go to their time this evening, that you would gift the the teacher with your spirit and with your power, that the message that's heard, the, the basics of the gospel are understood and believed by these children so that even we can see within our church disciples who would go on and grow to make more disciples. Father, we commit all these things to you. We trust that you are taking our requests and you are working in the lives of your people alleviate our fears, alleviate our anxieties of what being on mission looks like for you. Help us to trust in your word and in your, in your good promises that you will see disciples made across all of this world, that you will draw all people to yourselves. Help us to be a part of that and trust that that is true. Bless your word tonight as we study the book of Exodus. Help us to be an encouragement to our souls this evening. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, children, you are dismissed. So, ages five to eleven, you can go back to your time at ECC Kids. For anyone with children, ages four and under, we do have the nursery available. It's just down the right, through the right door, down the hallway, up the stairs, and you'll find the nursery there. As I mentioned, we are going to be in the Book of Exodus this evening. We'll begin a, a new series, and we just finished earlier. Early last year, we finished around June last year with the book of Genesis. So we're picking up that story heading into Exodus, and we probably will take more than six months. Um, We'll we'll likely go through this a bit longer than we did the book of Genesis. Not sure how long, but we will be getting we will begin the book of Exodus this evening. So if you have your Bibles with with you, um, you could make your way to Exodus chapter one. We will be reading the first 14 verses. They're going to be on the screen behind me. If you have your scriptures, you can follow along there as well as I read. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, both with, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaohs store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter and in all kind of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The theme of our sermon series is Exodus, Discovering God in the Wilderness. And it's a fitting theme, not just for our book, but for our text tonight, because what we'll find is that God's people will be in the wilderness, both figuratively figuratively and physically. Sometimes what we'll find as we go through this book together is that That wilderness is brought about just by difficult circumstances from godless people. We see that here in the first 14 verses of the chapter. That wilderness experience for these Israelites also comes about because of their own sinful actions. We'll see that as well. They make life harder for themselves. Other times we'll find that Israel is just in a bad situation because sometimes that's just life. Life is hard. Life is challenging. The circumstances in life have a way of just beating us down and leaving us discouraged, having us not only questioning ourselves, but also questioning God. Yet our theme is not stuck in the wilderness. Our theme is discovering God in the wilderness, and time and time again, where we see the people of Israel who are in this difficult situation, we will see God. We'll see God in impressive displays of power where he will do incredible things with plagues and parting the Red Sea. At times we'll see God in just quieter moments where he's in a burning bush talking with Moses saying you're standing on holy ground. Other times, God might not easily be seen. But we know he's there because we read his word and we see that God is blessing his people. So God is revealing himself to his people in the book of Exodus. That's where we get the idea of discovering God. God is revealing himself to these people. And he's ultimately doing it because he's continuing what we would call his his redemptive plan. It's theological talk for he's fixing what we screwed up. If we go back to Genesis and we... We go back to Genesis chapter 3, we see God has placed man in a perfect, innocent place in the garden, no sin, and yet what does man do? Man sins, disobeying God. Adam and Eve sin against God, and so sin brings death into the world, and from that point on in human history, what is God doing? He's trying to fix the wrong that we caused. That's the redemptive plan of God. So in Genesis, as you recall, he calls a man. Abraham, and he says to that man, I am making a covenant with you that I will create a nation from you, and from you, all of the world will be blessed. That covenant is passed down to his son, Isaac, and is then passed down to his grandson, Jacob, whose name we recall is changed to Israel. Jacob takes his family in the time of a a famine and he brings them to Egypt, knowing that his son now is Joseph, second in command of the entire nation of Egypt, this powerful leader. And if we were to flip one page back from Exodus chapter 1 to Genesis 50, what we would find is the end of Genesis and the death of Joseph. So we read the first 14 verses and they're, they're introducing the book to us, but it's, it's less of an introduction to the story and more of a continuation of the story. Picking up right after Joseph's, Joseph's death, we see that in Genesis 50, but if you go back even a bit further, Genesis 46, verse 8 says this, Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came to Egypt. Looks pretty familiar. You read the first verse, of our text tonight, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Almost identical language. So Moses, who wrote both Genesis and Exodus, he was the author of both of these books, he's connecting that these are the same people, this is the same story, we're just building on what we've already learned. There's an even more interesting connection, for those of you who like grammar and these types of things, if you don't like it, just check out for like 30 seconds and I'll be done. (laughs) There's a Hebrew letter called Vav. Vav. When you take that letter and you put it in front of a Hebrew word, Hebrew operates a little bit differently than English does. You put that letter at the beginning of a word, and it acts as a conjunction. You could translate it as so or now. Typically, you translate it as the word and. What's missing in this translation, and I haven't found a translation that actually does this, is that the beginning of Exodus starts with that letter. So you could really translate this first verse and say, and these are the names of the sons of God or the sons of Israel, who came from Egypt, who came to Egypt. So he's, he's making this grammatical connection that there's this book and this is happening. And if you go to the book of Leviticus, which is the next book in the order that Moses wrote, starts with the same construction. There's a vav at the beginning. So the book of Leviticus starts with, and this happened. And then you go to Numbers and it's, and this happened. So the books that Moses is writing are just building on each other through this whole time. That's what we need to understand. We, we shouldn't isolate Exodus and say, well, these are some cool stories. There's a greater connection here to all of what Moses has written. We're out of the grammar section, so you can pay attention again. <laughs> and for those who are familiar with the book, I'm sure some of you are already thinking, great, we're going through Exodus. I haven't done this in a long time. Some of you have, may have never have read this book before. Those who are familiar with it are like, there's some cool stories in here. We're going to get plagues. We're going to get seas being parted. We're going to get water coming out of a rock. We're going to get all of these different things. Incredible, incredible stories. The Ten Commandments. We remember the old movie with Charlton Heston in it. It comes on every year. I don't remember when. We're going to get the, all of these things. And it's going to really need to relive some of these stories. Maybe we learned in, as, as a kid growing up. But in the midst of all of these stories... What we come to understand is that there are people. There are people in these stories who are going through incredible circumstances. And there are going to be times when we read through Exodus where they they trust God. There's going to be a lot of times where they doubt God. There's going to be times of joy, and there's going to be times of confusion. There's going to be times of sadness. There'll be times of contentment. There'll be times of anger. We'll see tremendous displays of faith will also see a lot of sin because that's the reality of people. We're human people who sin. We're human people who do wrong. We're human people who doubt. And when we find Israel in this opening chapter, we kind of find them in a strange place. If you look at verse 7, we read, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew increasingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Again, making a connection back to Genesis, if you remember Genesis chapter one, verse twenty eight, God says, and the scripture says God blessed them, talking of Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Almost identical language. So Exodus chapter one, verse seven really is creation language. The the literal translation of this could be the people of Israel became fruitful and swarmed. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word swarm, but I think of, I think of yellow jackets. Some of you might think of bees. A couple years ago, I had the unfortunate happening of mowing my grass, and I went over a, a hornet's nest. I went over a yellow jacket's nest. And you talk about swarm as they're like stinging you all over the place, arms, legs, hands, through your shirt, through your shorts, all that stuff. That's the imagery. That's the picture of this word. Israel comes to Egypt, verse 6 tells us, with 70 people. And soon, very quickly, we don't know the exact timing of it, they were like swarming the land. They were everywhere. So the connection back to creation is showing that Israel is actually fulfilling that creation mandate. Genesis 1, God says, be fruitful, swarm the earth. Israel's doing what they were told to do. And why is this? Why are they doing this? It's because God ultimately is a God who wishes to be known. Why did he tell Adam and Eve, go and fill the earth? Because he desires to have people who know him and glorify him. Why does does Israel pick up that command and begin to fill it? Because God has a desire to have his people know him and glorify him. He desires to know his creation for his name to be glorified, but that begs the question, is God even knowable? It's an interesting question to ponder because we could look at it skeptically and say, it doesn't really matter if God wants to be known if it's impossible to actually know him. Because if you read the very first words of Genesis, what does it start with? In the beginning, God. From the very start of the book... We see a God who is transcendent. A God who is above creation in every aspect. <coughs> Herman Bovink is a Dutch theologian from the 19th century. He put it this way. He says, regarding the transcendence or the power and the glory of God, he says, without strain or fatigue, he calls the whole world into existence with his word alone. Think about that. He calls every aspect of creation into existence just by speaking a word the transcendence of god he is above all things we can turn to scripture and make this point even further psalm 33:6 says by the word of the lord the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth all of his hosts a few verses later for he spoke and he came to be he commanded and it stood firm Go to the book of Daniel. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. He lifts beaches like they're nothing. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare to him? These are just four verses that says God is above everything. He is singularly unique in this universe. There is nothing like him. No one can question him. Nothing can be compared to him. This is really why one of this is really one of the reasons why so many of our analogies, so many illustrations we try to come up to come up with to speak of God to explain God just simply fall short. He is beyond human comprehension. He is unfathomable. And yet the question still stands is he knowable? There's a worldview that says that there is a God. God exists in the world, but he is ultimately unknowable. It's called agnosticism. And while the agnostic may claim the existence of God, functionally he operates as if there is no God. Because if there is a God, but he is unknowable, that God has no reason to have any meaning in life. He has no impact on my life. And so what's the point of belief in God if God really has no purpose? An agnostic would argue against God's knowableness based on the fact that God is not rational and God is not observable. That's to say we can't touch, we can't feel, we can't see God materially. So the agnostic would say you can't comprehend him, you can't touch him, it's not rational, it doesn't fit within the human mind. And so to say God is knowable is ultimately a contradiction because God is too far above all of it. But the reality is, and what we'll see from Scripture, is that there can be no knowledge of God without God having revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in in two different ways. Theologians have broken this down. One is generally, we look at nature. Look at the sun, look at the moon, look at the stars, and you see order, you see design, you see a God who is behind all of those things, that's created all of those things. But beyond just generally, God has revealed himself in a special way. Ultimately, as we read scripture, it's through his son, Jesus Christ. We read about Jesus' life in the New Testament, the book of Exodus, every page is going to point us to him. So it naturally flows, and I know this is somewhat theological, somewhat philosophical argument, but it naturally flows that to the extent that God has revealed himself, is the extent to which he can be known. So if God has revealed himself in nature, we can know things of God in nature. If God has revealed himself through his son, we can know God through his son. This is why we studied Romans a number of years ago. That's why when we go to Romans chapter one, Paul can say no one is without excuse concerning unrighteousness. Just by seeing the created world, Men and women should know plainly who God is as revealed to them. This plain revelation is enough to know God, but it's this special revelation that we talked about through Jesus Christ. That's not enough, that's more than enough to know God and who He is and see His work, but that is even more than enough to know God intimately and relationally. So as an agnostic would put it and say, well, you just can't know God. They deny the knowability of God. It's really to deny the existence of God himself. It's to say that God has never revealed himself in this world. And that's just flatly not true. If God had not revealed himself into this world, what we would be, what we would be dealing with is a world that is totally and eternally independent of God. And a world independent of God is a world that is set for disaster. So the agnostic who claims there is no God, there is a God who is a noble, turns out practically, like I mentioned, to just simply be an atheist. There really is no framework for agnosticism. So if someone ever comes along to you and say, I'm an agnostic, there's probably a God out there, you just can't know him. Functionally, practically, they operate as if God does not exist. There's really no difference. For most of us, though, in this room, I would venture to say That's not our problem. We don't have an agnostic worldview. What we look at when we consider God is that we are very little. And God is very big. We read and we see God's infinite greatness, his overwhelming majesty, and we're left with this sense of nothingness. We're left with this sense of just feeling so small compared to him that even if I wanted to know God, it's not possible to know him because I am so small and he is so big. We watched the, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies last week while I wasn't feeling well. It's a great way to get through some sickness. It's like 14 hours long or whatever it is. You get a lot of time in to watch the movies. There's this one part towards the beginning of the movie where Bilbo and Gandalf are having a bit of an argument over the ring And Bilbo says something and Gandalf just gets angry. And visually they show it by him just getting big, he's large, Bilbo's kind of cowering away. That's the sense that sometimes we live in as Christians. Where I am just so small compared to this incredibly powerful one, this incredibly powerful being. It's a silly example, but I think that's how we feel sometimes, God is so much above us. He's too wonderful wonderful for us. The, the mystery of God just transcends everything that we are. And in a sense, that's true. In a sense, it's true. And it's our, our humble confession to God that he is supremely above us. That we are tiny. We are little in comparison. But we should make a distinction, and I think rightly so, that there's a difference between God being unfathomable and God being unknowable. God is profound, he is deep. It confounds our mind to understand him. We can't make a definition that does justice to God. We can't come up with a description that is adequate of who he is. And yet, he can be known. Why? It's because this supremely unique God has made us supremely unique in his creation. His entire creation is stamped with excellence, but we are the ones, Genesis 1 tells us, that are made in his image. And not only that, more than that, we we read Paul's words, Acts chapter 17, and he says this, Paul is standing and he's come to Athens and he's standing before a bunch of individuals and he says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. That is an incredibly immense, transcendent God. But these next words? Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, and some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This incredible, transcendent God, he is not far from us. In him we live. This great, powerful, infinite God holds the world together. And at the same time, he says, you are my children. And we have to hold these two truths together. The reality and the truth that God is absolutely transcendent. He is above all things but we also know the truth and hold that rightly with it, that God is absolutely knowable. The knowledge of God is not simply this philosophical or theological concept that we maintain in our intellect. God's revealed himself so that he might be known, again, not just intellectually, but by faith. So that this infinite God who is above all things would actually be known personally, relationally, We've mentioned it already, but while general revelation through creation can can leave us without an excuse before God, it leaves us guilty before God, special revelation through Jesus Christ, the ultimate revelation of God, is what we need for forgiveness. To be close to God, to know him, is only through Jesus Christ. The only way we are made right with God, the only way our sins are forgiven is through Jesus Christ. And now you might be sitting here thinking, We've spent 23 minutes talking about this. What in the world does this have to do with Exodus? <laughs> you might be wondering that. Here's why I believe it's important for this book. We're about to come across a man very quickly who's going to have his mark over all of these pages. And that man, he simple title we get is Pharaoh. He's the king of Egypt, really the king at this point of the known world, the most powerful man in the world. This man believes that he is supremely, has supreme authority. This man believes that he is the one who should be calling the shots. Not only that, what we'll come across in this book is not just a man who thinks he has supreme authority, but a collection of gods that the Egyptian people have put together and worshiped. Most of them are natural things in creation. They, they worship a God of the Nile River, which provided them sustenance at this time. They worship a God from, with the sun. So they, they worship all of these things, and what we're going to find in the book of Exodus is the true God, the one who is transcendent above all things, who, know, who wants to know us intimately, is going to smash all of them. Every God that's put before him, he crushes. Pharaoh wants to stand up and say, I'm supreme, he's going to wipe him out. God's going to show him what supreme authority looks like. And so we we need to understand that this God is transcendent. He is above all things. Nothing can contain him. Nothing can control him. Nothing can question him. And in the middle of this, we have a people. The people of Israel who God desires to have a relationship with. In our text, we find that the people of Israel are less than an ideal state. We've read in verse 7 that they're blessed with multiplying children. They're, they're blessed in this way, but then you come to verse 8 through 14, you, you see this kind of a bleak picture for Israel. A new pharaoh has come on the scene. He, the, the word says here that he did not know Joseph. It's probably not that he didn't know who Joseph was. He just ignored, he didn't care who Joseph was. He sees these people who are growing in number, and he says, we have a problem on our hands because these people are going to be a problem for us. Joseph's gone. These Israelites keep growing. They're breeding like rabbits. They just keep going on, and they're just going to continue to be a problem. And so what he does is he points to them, and he says, look at those troublemakers over there. These people, if they grow large enough, they become numerous enough, what are they going to do when something bad happens? What are they going to do when an enemy comes in? They're going to side with them. They're going to disrupt our order. They're going to disrupt our society. We might fail as a country if, if they come in and cause these problems. His solution then is to make them slaves. Makes them slaves, and he believes that this will, continue, this will keep them from continuing to have as many children. Because basically, he says, I don't, I don't want as many Israelite babies running around anymore. He's going to go really extreme in this, this next section. We're not going to touch on it tonight. But the latter half of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he's going to get really extreme with this. But he doesn't want to see this to continue to happen. And what we see a glimpse of in these verses, and I think will become more apparent later, is this. The Exodus story is less of a story of Pharaoh versus Israel or Pharaoh versus Moses It's ultimately a story of Pharaoh versus God. Because what Israel's doing by having these children is fulfilling created mandate, creation mandate. They they are doing what God has instructed them to do. And what Pharaoh is doing is putting himself in direct opposition to that. He says, I don't want you doing that. What God has commanded you to do, I don't want you doing. God is working his redemptive plan and he's using Israel to do it and Pharaoh at every stop of the way is going to continue to be in opposition to that. So he sounds the alarm. He gets the people riled up. He says, these non-Egyptians over here, they're going to overthrow our society. They're going to overthrow our land. They're going to fight with our enemies. They're going to cause us problems. And really, you look at the text and there's no indication that Israel is a problem. You go back to Genesis chapter 47 and you actually read the Pharaoh at that time is having a discussion with Joseph and he says, why don't you and your family take the best part of the land? He sets them up for success. And this Pharaoh comes along and he says, no, we're going to, we're going to change the arrangement. There's a lot of interesting points of application that we could make specifically in the realm of I think, our political environment present day. I'm going to touch on a a subject that m- might make some of you uncomfortable. But when you consider what our present day viewpoint is and our present day look, outlook is, particularly politically, specifically when it comes to foreigners and immigration, I think what this can teach us practically and in, in a form of application is, what is our perspective and our viewpoint towards those who are different than us? Who look different than us, who talk different than us, who sound different than us? who maybe have a different culture than we do. Certainly we recognize that a country has laws that they need to maintain. And as Christians, we would say, as long as those are just laws, we should main- they should be maintained. And we would rightly say, a country has the right to do that. And again, provided they're just laws, we should be comfortable with that being enforced. We don't want to endorse lawlessness, but at the same time, at a heart level, I think we can say... We certainly don't want to have an attitude like this Pharaoh. There's speculation in, in Old Testament scholars that this Pharaoh was actually one who, who came along and took over power in Egypt, kicking out a previously foreign Pharaoh. So there was a Pharaoh who was ruling the land who was not Egyptian, and he, he came along and he, he kicked this one out and he took over power. And so he had this, this ill intent towards anyone who was not Egyptian, anyone who was foreign. We certainly don't want to sound like him. We certainly don't want to take a position that says, well, these foreigners, they're just different than us. They're dangerous. They disrupt the order of things. And, it, and I think, and again, this is a touchy subject. I'm more than happy to expound on it with someone afterwards if you have any questions, because there's only so much you can talk about in a sermon on this topic. But I think if our driving perspective towards someone who looks different, who speaks different, who comes from a different place... If if our driving perspective is, well, they're just dangerous. They're going to cause us problems. Can I suggest that perhaps our heart motivation is actually being driven by fear? And it's true in the ancient world. We see it with Pharaoh. It's true of our politicians today, whether it's a king, whether it's a Pharaoh, whether it's a president, whether it's a senator. They prey on people who are afraid. Political statements are made. Policies are created that ultimately exploit fearful people. So candidates come along and they say, vote for me because I will help fix this thing you're afraid of. And again, there's more nuance to the immigration policy and discussion that we can get into here. There are intricacies in each case. What I go back to is, I don't think we wanna sound like Pharaoh. And as Christians, after all, aren't we just strangers and foreigners in this world? Of all people, we can have a different perspective than this pharaoh because we understand what it means to be oppressed. We understand what it means to be ostracized. We, want, we understand what it means to be the different ones in a world that wants to go a certain direction. And so, we'll move on from politics in a moment. As we enter into 2024 and all of the ads are going to come along, check our hearts to say, what am I afraid of? Are these people preying on and exploiting the fear that's in my life? And check it against scripture. Pharaoh's words, we find, are just met with acceptance. Pretty quickly, actually. We read the Israelites were made slaves. They begin building cities for these Egyptians. Likely, what they're, what they're building is actually storing military equipment, military goods that would be used to fight the enemies of the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh's thought is, if I work them so hard, they won't have children. The men will be so tired, maybe malnourished, the population growth will just slow, and what we find in verse 12 is the exact opposite happens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. I don't know if guys just needed to unwind after a long day on the job, but the more they were working, the more kids were coming out the number of Israelites began to spread more and more, and rather than seeing their error, the Israelites, they simply doubled down. They doubled down on all of this. Verse 14 says, they made, this is speaking of the Egyptians, they made the Israelites' lives bitter with hard service. And as we wrap up our time and finish this evening, I want to just come back to one question, and I, I think we're going to encounter this multiple times through this book. And we see it here today, just implicit, not explicitly stated. But we have to wonder, where is God in all of this? We spent so much time earlier saying, God is a God who wants to be known. He wants to be, he's revealed himself to his people. And yet we see them in this situation. We say, where is he? Why is he letting this happen? Doesn't he understand what's going on? His people are slaves to godless, sun-worshipping people with some narcissist, fear-mongering leader. How is this right? God, where are you? And it's an ancient question that God's people have struggled with through all of time. It's one that we like, we wrestle with. Why is God apparently disinterested in my life? Where is he when life feels like it's just falling apart? And for those of you who are, who are old enough to remember, I'm not going to go to Footprints in the Sand, that poem, where it's like, when, when life was hardest, God was carrying you. That's why there was only one set of footprints. Instead, I want to go to Scripture. Psalm, Psalm 73. We read these verses earlier. But before we get to Psalm 73, I want to say this. Wondering where God is in your life or what he's doing in your life, is not a mark of spiritual immaturity. To doubt God is not to distrust God. One commentator put it this way, he says, this is the dilemma when you say, where are you, God? It represents the honest desire of God's people in this world who long to feel his presence in their lives. It's in those moments of questioning God that we, don't, we shouldn't stop to beat ourselves up and say, look at your lack of faith. How are you doubting God? Rather, recognize that when we don't sense and feel the presence of God in our lives, it's an honest desire from people who love God that want him in their lives. You wouldn't desire his presence if you wanted nothing to do with him. Psalm 73, we've read these verses early, but I, I want to revisit them again. What we find in the beginning of Psalm 73 is the writer Asaph, he understands how things work. He says it in verse 1 Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to Israel. Intellectually, he knows how God operates, and yet what we find is experientially, things are not how they were supposed to be. He says in verse 2 His feet almost slipped, his steps have stumbled. Asaph looks around and contrary to what he knows to be the case, he sees arrogant, wicked people who are prospering. He sees God's people, the righteous ones who are suffering. We see that in Exodus as well. God's people suffer under the oppression of slavery. They're building cities. They're building storage facilities for these wicked Egyptians we don't know who don't know or love God, and they're treating them harshly, and so their lives are bitter, and it shouldn't be this way. Certainly what we find in our own lives, too. Circumstances don't meet expectation. We lose people we love and care about. We experience problems in our family, whether it's from sickness, conflicting relationships, struggles raising children, our own sinful behaviors, the sinful behaviors of others. Our lives get flipped upside down by some unexpected news. We wonder where we're gonna get money to pay for that bill, where we're gonna get money to pay for the car that just broke down. Someone hurts us by, our ac- by their actions or by their inaction. And it's often in life where the circumstances don't meet what we expect that we look at God and say, do you actually love me? Do you actually care? But the reality is and the truth is that he does love us. He does care for us. He never leaves us. He cares about what is just. He cares about what is right. And so why then does it feel like the opposite is happening? Asaph helps us. He sees this tension with how things are supposed to run and how things actually are. And ultimately, he's confused. We see in verse 15, he says, If I had said I will speak thus, I will betray the generation of your children. He says, I, I can't even tell other people that I'm, that I'm distrusting you. I can't even tell other people that I'm, that I'm confused by what's happening. He can't tell others that God's not keeping his promises because he he recognizes that it would be harmful for them because perhaps they're going through the same struggles in life. So it should be a a reminder for us to be careful when we're interacting with others who are struggling with these same things to not just go deep into, well, God's just a bad God, isn't he? Because you don't know how that's going to impact or affect somebody else. And I don't believe this is a command to not talk to others about what we're going through, but it's a, it's a principle to be careful with what we say and how we say it. Don't make matters worse for other people. So he says, I, I can't even talk to others about what I'm going through. And then in verse 16, he says, but then I thought how to understand this, and it seemed to me a wearisome task. He says, I can't even think about this. Not only can I not talk about it, I can't even keep it all inside either because it's just too much for me. It overwhelms me. It oppresses me. So what can he do? Where can he go? He sees this problem. He can't talk to others. He can't keep it inside. Where does he go? Verse 17, he goes to God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. He turns to the one he thinks is neglecting him. He goes to the one whose presence he doubts. And why? It's because something that we, we don't always understand but we know is that God, even when we sense he's not present, he is present. He is there. He always has been there. Church, doubts will come. That's human. That's life. Doubts will come. Uncertainty will happen. It is human to question where God is when things are not going like they should and we experience hardship, and we experience pain, and we experience hurt. And those experiences and the circumstances in our lives does not mean we lack faith. You can't claim that of Asaph. He certainly did not lack faith. But the struggles of this life are hard, they're real. Godless people hurt us, other Christians hurt us. Sin makes life hard for us. Our own sin, the sins of others makes life hard for us. We feel like we're in this wilderness spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. We're just wandering aimlessly like we have no food. We feel like we're in the wilderness like the people of Israel and yet our feelings, our perceptions are not always reality. God is present. He does care. So we face those feelings or perceptions or doubts of God and we we meet them head on just like Asaph does. We go to God and we're honest about how we're feeling. Recognizing that our feelings don't always tell us what's true. They don't always match what's true. But in this honest confession, in this honest conversation with God, I think it deepens our trust in Him. It deepens our relationship with Him. And so it helps us to actually discover this infinite, powerful God to know that He does care for us. He does care for us who feel so small and little. And in reality, what Asaph is doing is he's going to God because God is the only one. God is the only one who he can go to for care, only one he can go to for comfort, only one he can go to for compassion. And in those times of coming to God with our honest emotions, we come to find that we get to know him better our relationship with him grows deeper. So when we look around in 2024 and it's an election year and all of these things, we turn on the news, we scroll through social media, we'll hear a lot of things like, this election's the biggest one in our nation's history. You hear it every four years. But it's going to be, this one's the one. If we lose this election, we lose our country. Things are in chaos we look around and like, where, where are the leaders in our nation right now? And you might be tempted to say, God, where are you in all of this? And the reality is, he's right there. Kings and countries rise and fall according to his plan. Presidents are elected according to his plan. He's there even when we don't feel it. And when we see our personal circumstances, know that even when we don't perceive him, he's there. He was with you when your family member died. He was with you when you were treated poorly. He's with you now in all of your pain, all of your hurts, all of your sorrows, all of your doubts. And he's ultimately there, and what we'll find in the book of Exodus is that he's there because he never forgets his people. He never forgets those who are his. Israel was in slavery for over 400 years. They had plenty of reasons to doubt whether God was with them. But God never forgot them. In fact, you read the the words from Exodus 1, God blesses them. He gives them children upon children upon children. We battle hurts, we battle wrongs, we battle injustice, we battle loss. And it's the mark of a maturing Christian who experiences these pains and these doubts and says, God, what are you doing? With an honest question, God, do you even care? And in the midst of all that says, I don't know if you do, but I'll trust that you do. I don't feel like you do, but I'll trust that you do. Things aren't the way they should be, but God keeps His promises. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are His. You are Christ, and Christ is God's. And He will never forget you. The last couple of verses on our screen, we read Who do we have in heaven but God? Our hearts, our flesh may fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. In Christ, all the fullness of God dwells. Colossians chapter one, Hebrews chapter two says, he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. The transcendent God, the one who is above all things, who is greater than all things, brought near to us. And when he seems so distant, what I think we can remember is because of Christ, because of who he is, because of what he's done, he's closer than we ever realized. So all the pain, all the hurt, God is in the midst of all of that with you. Church, it's our practice to have communion weekly at ECC. So that's what we're going to do. So I would invite anyone here who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins that you would join with us. that You would partner with us in this way. But if it's not true of you, if you cannot claim Christ as yours, maybe you feel that God is just far away from you. Maybe you feel like you can't come to him. I would encourage you to talk to someone, talk to me, talk to Chris, talk to Justin, Eddie, someone. And ultimately, I would encourage you not only to talk to someone, but also know that what we're celebrating in this communion, what we're celebrating is Christ's sacrifice for us. That God who is above all things came down to be like one of us. To go through the pains of this world to sacrifice his life, to die the death that we deserved. And if you were to repent and believe, that Christ could be yours. The God who feels far away from you can be yours in Christ. And so for us who are believers, we take communion reflecting that. We take communion praising God, remembering him for what what he's done. So what we'll do is, again is customary. We'll sing a song. We'll come back together. I will take communion as one church.
4: If everyone could please stand.
5: Your history can prove There's nothing you can't do You're faithful and true Though the storms may come And the winds may blow I'll remain steadfast And let my heart learn When you speak a word It will come to pass Great is your faith faithfulness to me, great is your faithfulness to me, from the rising sun to the setting same, I will praise your name, great is your faithfulness to my hope and firm foundation he'll never let me down i put my faith in jesus my anchor to Setting same, I will praise your name. Great is your faithfulness to me.
6: Come to a time of communion together remembering what Christ has done for us. The fact that we can be near to God is because of what Jesus has done, because of his broken body and his shed blood for us. The death that we deserve taken by him, the cross that we should have borne, he bore for us. So we take communion remembering that, remembering the event that what, what Jesus did, he commands us to remember this until he comes, but he also says the words that he won't eat of this and drink of this cup again until he's with us so we we remember what he did but we look forward to a promise that one day we will be with our savior jesus christ and we will take this meal with him so let's as one church take communion together pray as we close. God, we know that there is no one like you. You are above all, greater than all. Nothing can compare. Yet you have brought yourself to us. You have revealed yourself to us and you have desired to have a relationship with us. And you have said that at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. God, we ask that as we leave here tonight, we would remember those things. That although you are a God who is above all, you have come to us, called us to yourself. You have chosen for yourself a people, and we are grateful and thankful to be a part of that. Help us, Father, to go in peace in your love knowing we're forgiven, knowing we are justified, knowing we are cared for, and when the trials of life want to beat us down, help us to rest in the comforting arms of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.